Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves. And I'm Don Bishop. We're your hosts for Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring John Kumiski, and he'll be answering your most important questions on fly fishing for redfish. This show will be 90 minutes in length. We're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask John a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. Click on the link below the description of the show that says click here to ask John your most important question. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we'll be trying to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 12 hours after the show ends. If you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group being doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Captain John Kamiski about fly fishing for big redfish. New from the Winston Rod Company for 2007, Boron 2T Rods, new technology, traditional feel. This series combines the feel of our traditional action rods with the lightness and responsiveness of our latest technology. These rods offer the ultimate in delicate presentation, while still retaining a good measure of power and reserve, thanks to the dynamic properties of our Boron 2 technology. These four-piece rods are available in three through five weight and retail for $625. They are designed and crafted at the Winston Shop in Twin Bridges, Montana, and feature the traditional Winston green finish and Winston unconditional lifetime warranty. Cast the new Winston Boron 2T at the best place possible, your local specialty fly shop. Before we introduce John, we'd like to let you know about the great gifts we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we will be giving away an autographed copy of Captain John Kaminsky's book, Redfish on the Fly. This is a brand new book just released within the past two weeks. We'll also give away a one-year subscription to Fly Fusion Magazine and a three-year membership to the Federation of Fly Fishers. So you have three chances to win tonight. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under John's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. Our guest tonight is Captain John Kamiski. John guides the waters of the Indian River Mosquito Lagoon area of Florida's Atlantic coast over near Cape Canaveral in the Kennedy Space Center. His second book on redfish, Redfish on the Fly, A Comprehensive Guide, has just been released by Argonaut Publishing Company. We'll hear more about that later, but this is filled with practical information and includes detailed insights to fishing many locations throughout the U.S. distribution of the redfish. John's fishing career began in Massachusetts, where he grew up. After graduating from UMass, he spent four years in South America teaching in an American school in Brazil and fishing around South America's fresh and saltwater. He came to Central Florida in the mid-80s, where he continued teaching with part-time guiding and, and writing. And by 1995, he made the transition to full-time guiding and writing, and he has written eight books and hundreds of articles on fly fishing since. As a guide, he's still teaching, and he's a certified fly casting instructor. He teaches classes in fishing at Brevard Community College and at the Andy Thornall Fly Fishing for Redfish School and uh, Kayak Fishing School. Of course, that's a 
far cry from his previous uh, classroom experience. With all the time he's spent researching and guiding, I'm sure we'll be learning a lot as Captain John Kamiski answers your questions about fly fishing for redfish. John, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thanks. It's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to be on. Well, John, we've got a lot to talk about tonight. You've you've seen the questions, and uh, there's just a load of questions there tonight. And, folks, I think what we're going to do is cover a number of different areas. We're going to talk about the redfish itself, uh, locations where it can be found, because it's got a, a pretty large range in, in North America, and, uh, you know, where specifically we can hunt these fish down and stock them, the equipment, the flies used, and then uh, John's presentation strategy and techniques that he used to, to get those, those really big reds. And many of you put in here specific location requests about certain areas, and we'll, we'll, we'll address those near the end of the show, and, and hopefully we'll get those answered for you. Well, John, to get started here, let's talk about the redfish. Now, one thing that Don and I have heard is, is it's often referred to as the redfish, or more commonly, but it's known as another name, and there's also what's called a black drum. Can you kind of begin to sort those fish out for us? Redfish are properly called red drum. A redfish is a colloquial name, which is fairly widespread throughout their range, but in uh, South Carolina, they're called spot-tail bass. Up in Virginia, they call them channel bass. Black drum are one of their relatives. They're in the same family of fishes. They're in a different genus, and, of course, they're a different species. So. But when, why, does it, why are they called drums? They are able to resonate their air bladder and make a drumming noise. That, that they, they do that when they're spawning. They do that when they're stressed. For instance, when you catch them, you'll frequently hear them drumming. John, can you give us a, a bit of a rundown on uh, what their life cycle is like and where they spawn, that kind of thing? Sure. Uh, generally, they spawn in inlets and passes. That usually happens in the uh, late summer and into the fall. It depends where in their range they are. But when the day length hits 10 and a half hours as the days get shorter in the summertime, that's the, the main trigger along with water temperature. So the, the the big breeding fish will school up around inlets and passes. They spawn mostly on the full moon and new moon. Um, they're broadcast spawners. They just drop their eggs, and the currents carry them out to, to sea. They spawn on the outgoing tide, and then uh, after the eggs hatch, the larvae uses currents to get back up into the estuaries. The the small fish go up fairly far into, into estuary, into brackish water, and then as they get older, they work their way back out again. They mature between three and four years of age, at which point they leave the estuary, go back out through the inlet, find the school of breeding adult fish out there, and join those near near shore schools of fish. And that wraps it up pretty much as far as their life cycle in a nutshell. When they do get out with the uh, adult uh, uh, spawning age fish, how then do they migrate with the seasons, or how do tides and weather impact them? Redfish, for the most part, are non-migratory. Um, tagging studies that have been done in various states indicate that most tags are recovered within five miles of where the fish were tagged. Um, there are rare exceptions to that. I know of one fish that was tagged in Charleston, South Carolina, that was recovered along the east coast of Florida 
250 miles away. So the occasional fish does have wanderlust, but for the most part, they don't go very far. How, how big do they get? I mean, you said that, that what would you say, two to three, two to four years they move back out? Three to four years, depending on okay. what sex they are and, and where they are, too. Okay. They, what, they what grow kind of size in fish? Florida, of course. Yeah. What kind of size fish are they when they finally leave the estuaries and, and, and get out into the to the ocean? They'll be somewhere between 30 and 34 inches, which is 10 to 14 pounds. Uh, the all-tackle world record is something around 90 pounds, and the, there have been a bunch of new fly rod records set in Louisiana in the past few months, and I do not belong to the International Game Fish Association, so I don't know what they are. The, the largest redfish that I know of caught on fly with the IGFA was 43 pounds. It was caught in the Banana River Lagoon on 12-pound tippet. So, so they gain their that, that big growth out in the ocean when they're feeding out there primarily. For the most part. Yeah. Do they come back and forth then through the, the channels into back into the estuaries? As a general rule, they don't. However, there are exceptions to that. In the Indian River Lagoon where I fish, they don't go out to sea. They stay in the lagoon their whole life. Um, up in North Carolina, in Pamlico Sound, those fish stay in the, in the sound their entire life. So there are variations on the theme. But generally, the adult fish stay along the beaches. Do redfish vary at all uh, in appearance or behavior in their different distributions? And maybe while we're at it, you could even describe sort of where they're located. Um, in researching this book, I drove to North Carolina and fished my way back to Florida, and then I flew to South Texas and fished my way back to Florida. The fish looked the same to me the entire way, they behaved somewhat the same way, and I will call, explain that qualification in a minute. The biologists tell me that here in Florida, the East Coast fish and the West Coast fish are genetically different. They can they can mark they can mark the difference between them by doing a DNA analysis. They can tell right away where that fish is from. So on a cellular level, they're not exactly the same, but as far as the animal itself, easily recognized as a redfish, and I'm sure they could breed. The difference in their behavior that I've found in all those travels depends on a couple things. One is fishing pressure. Where there's a lot of fishing pressure, they are spookier than where there isn't very much fishing pressure. And another thing is that changes their behavior is the tidal range. Like in the Indian River Lagoon, where I fish, there's very little tidal range. It's measured in inches. In Louisiana, for example, the tidal, and in South Texas, the tidal range is small in a lot of places, a few inches to a foot. On the coast of Georgia, up around St. Simon's Island, the tidal range there can be 10 feet. So that changes their behavior, of course, because they, they move in and out with those tides. So it depends where they are. But other than that, they're very, very recognizable as red drum no matter where they are. Uh, John, did, when you say they move in and out on those where there are significant tidal changes, do they move in and out like a, a bonefish would to feed? Do they go way up in the shallows and feed and then move back out as the as the tide goes out? Well, what happens in the eastern United States where they have these big tides, um, there are extensive salt marshes there, Spartina grass marshes. When those marshes flood, the red the redfish love to eat crabs, and one of their favorites are fiddler crabs. 
they have a hard time getting those crabs at low tide, obviously. But when the marsh floods, they'll get up on the top of the marsh in that grass, and they will t- tail looking for those crabs. Um, as soon as the tide starts to go back out, though, they don't want to get stuck up there, so they right back off those flats. Another thing that happens in those areas is uh, during the winter time, a lot of the bait fish that the dolphin would eat in the summertime aren't there because they migrate south, the mullet and the menhaden, and those types of things. So the dolphins eat redfish, and those fish in the wintertime will stay in the shallowest water they can get in as a uh, defense mechanism against getting eaten by dolphins. Does a dolphin eat a 10 or 15-pound redfish? No, but they'll eat a 3 or 4-pounder in a heartbeat. Okay, okay so they get the, the smaller ones then. Mm-hmm. What other enemies uh, do redfish have besides dolphins and man? I was out last winter, and uh, an, an osprey crashed in front of me, only 150, 200 feet away. He came out of the water with a four-pound redfish. and flew. I almost could touch him with my fishing rod as he flew past me. I got a really, really good look at it. Um, I don't know how significant osprey predation is on four-pound redfish, but I'm sure in the smaller fish... Um, they're eaten by all kinds of, you know, the wading birds, the cormorants, all those types of things. They're eaten by other larger fish when they're small, I'm sure. Um, sharks eat them. So there are other things out there that will eat them. Okay, Doug. Now, you talked about fishing pressure. Um, I believe I understood from reading your book that at one time the numbers on redfish were a bit down, but now with slot limits there's been quite a comeback. I've lived in Florida since 1984. When I got here, the size limit on redfish was 12 inches. And uh, I don't remember what the bag limit was. Not that it mattered to me because I don't like to kill that many fish. But there was a chef in New Orleans that invented a dish called blackened redfish. And it yeah. started a big blackened redfish craze. And, I remember uh, that, yeah. That recipe was designed for a small fish, 5 to 7 pound fish which are the immature fish that live in the estuaries. So all of a sudden, there had never been any market demand for this fish, but after that recipe came about and it just caught on like wildfire, there was heavy commercial fishing pressure on those fish all of a sudden. And uh, they I don't want to say they wiped them out, but they dropped the numbers really good such that they started targeting the breeding fish along the coast, especially in the Gulf of Mexico. And what they would do to find these fish is they would send up airplanes to find the school. The airplane would uh, radio to the net boat, a persane boat, the position of the school, and the persane would come and scoop up the whole school, you know, 10,000 fish that weigh 20 pounds apiece. So when that kind of thing starts happening, the fish have an immediate problem the federal government stepped in, uh, outlawed that stuff. The state of Florida made redfish a game fish, and we had a two-year period where you couldn't keep one. So now in Florida, we have a slot limit. It's one fish per person per day. They have to be between 18 and 27 inches long. Um, there's getting to be enough fishing pressure here that the biologists are starting to worry that there's not enough recruitment of the immature fish into adult fish. They like 30% of those fish to make it to adulthood. And they're starting to see that it's not happening anymore. So I think Florida's going to have to tighten it up a little bit. Now, that's Florida. What about um, what about the other states, Louisiana, uh, Carolinas? 
all the states have slot limits. All the states have bag limits. Louisiana, in my experience, has the best fishing for redfish available out of any of the coastal states. Um, in terms of size and numbers and stupidity of the fish, they're so easy to catch there because there's lots and lots of marsh there, and there aren't that many fishermen out there. And so it just hasn't caught on there yet? Is that as, as much as it has in Florida for sport fishing? I don't think that they have the population there that we have here. Oh, yeah, okay. The human population, you know, I just don't think there are as many people there. I know certainly when I have fished there, even on weekends, you very seldom see other boats. Sounds like a place to go. Now, did um, uh, we have a question here from Jason in Western Pennsylvania? He wanted to know about all the recent storms. I guess you know, thinking of last year and the hurricanes and so forth. Has that really affected the redfish in any adverse way or or positive way? It has not affected them in an adverse way. Although, certainly in the short term, right after the storm, when the water is real high and real dirty and there's trash every place, they're hard to find and catch. But as soon as that as soon as the water cleared up, you know, in Louisiana, they had great fishing. The problem was there was no place to stay. There was no place to launch boats. They had in infrastructure problems. But as far as the fish themselves were, they were fine. They live in estuaries behind barrier islands. They've evolved through the millennia with hurricanes all the time. It doesn't bother them in the long term at all, I don't think. Well, I have a, a note here that uh, Greg Arnold, who's a guide down uh, out of New Orleans, uh, sent in. Uh, since September, uh, they've brought uh, 400 fish to the boat over 20 pounds. So uh, they're obviously not hurting. I actually uh, made a couple of phone calls to some of the guides uh, mentioned in your book, John, and, and they mentioned that down near Louisiana, a lot of the infrastructure is back in place. So uh, there's no reason for people to be reluctant to go down to that area. They may find some of the best fishing they've seen in, in years, as several of the guides have reported. Um, you mentioned about the slot limits. I'm just wondering, are the slot limits the same in all the different states pretty much? I don't really know the answer to that, Don. Um, I know in Florida the slot limit is designed to be a two- to three-year-old fish. In other words, an 18-inch fish in the state of Florida is two years old, and a 27-inch fish in the state of Florida is three years old. So legally they can only be caught and kept for that one year of their life. If they make it through that year, they're above the slot and they're supposedly home free. Well, uh, I've got a question here uh, as we move on uh, into location. Ted Yergi up in uh, northern Virginia is new to redfish, and he, he wonders uh, just exactly what kind of water it is that he's looking for in finding them. Do they go into brackish water or fresh water at all? And, and maybe, John, while you're at it, you could even uh, mention what an estuary entails. The smaller fish will go into fresh water. Now, I say smaller fish, but I know here in Florida, they occasionally catch redfish in uh, Lake Monroe, which isn't too far from where I live. It's in Sanford, Florida. It's a, at least 100 miles up the St. John's River. And every year or two, you read about someone catching redfish there that are 10 pounds or so. So yeah, they will go up there. It's not common, but it happens. Redfish, redfish are found where there are barrier islands along the coast. So... If you look at a map of the east coast of the United States, 
the outer banks of North Carolina are barrier islands. And behind the barrier islands are, are uh, Pamlico Sound, Card Sound, and some other ones, Albemarle Sound, all those those are prime. That's all prime redfish habitat. That's the kind of place they like. Here in Florida, we have barrier islands like Merritt Island, where the Kennedy Space Center is. Behind that barrier island is the Mosquito Lagoon, the Indian River Lagoon, the Banana River Lagoon. It's prime redfish habitat. All along the Gulf Coast, you have barrier islands where you have thin strips of land, sand, essentially sand, big sand dunes, behind which are um, Pine Island Sound in Florida. And that continues the whole way up the coast into Texas. Uh, South Padre Island in Texas is a long barrier island behind which is the Laguna Madre. That's prime redfish habitat. So those are the types of places you find them. One of the questions I read was, do you find them out in the Caribbean? You don't because you don't have those types of habitats. Another one was, do you find them in Biscayne Bay or in the Florida Keys? Very few because you don't have those types of habitats. So you need to have barrier islands with some type of brackish water behind it, and that's the types of places they live. Okay, and then an estuary is uh, kind of where where a, a river flows out to meet the ocean. So it's where the fresh and the salt water get mixed together, exactly. Right, and, and fairly enclosed area. Yeah. Well, um, one of the things in my reading, uh, you you mentioned the impact of the barrier islands on the the waters behind that island, uh, apparently down in the Laguna Madre and, and uh, near South Padre Island, the waters actually become hypersaline. Is that, uh, is that commonly the case, and can redfish tolerate that? That happens there, and the fish do tolerate it. That happens in the Indian River Lagoon, although not to the extent it does in the Laguna Madre. It happens in Florida Bay, and the fish seem to handle it just fine. They're they're fairly tolerant. I mean, they can they prefer a regular salt water salinity, which is I believe thirty parts per thousand. But it can go up or down quite a bit, and they can handle it. So, John, when you said uh, very few fish are down by Biscayne Bay and the Keys and so forth, uh, does that um, what about over in the Everglades on the on the west side? There is there more of a habitat for them there. Well, why don't I talk about their range throughout their where you find them throughout their range because it's it's a pretty simple thing to do. Historically, they went up into New Jersey, um, and I, I I was at the fly fishing show in January, and I spoke to someone who lives there who still catches them sometimes in New Jersey. So they you can find them north of Chesapeake Bay. You can't expect to, but you can if you go and look hard enough. Um, basically, they range from the Chesapeake on the east coast, from the Chesapeake Bay, south to Stewart, Florida, which is where the Indian River Lagoon ends. And uh, then you find very few south of that in the east coast of the United States. Then on the Gulf Coast, from Flamingo and Everglades National Park, all the way to the Mexican line and beyond, there is no place in the Gulf Coast you can't find them. Well, John, we need to take a, a brief break here. When we return, we'll be talking more with John Comiskey about fly fishing for redfish along the American coast. Royal Gorge Anglers is a full-service fly shop on the Arkansas River in Canyon City, Colorado. 
They also provide both walkwade and float fishing guide service on the Arkansas, South Platte, and several private high country ranches. They specialize in fly fishing education and work to assure that everyone taking a trip leaves being a better fly fisher. For the best service and the most fun in the Southern Rockies, visit the folks at Royal Gorge Anglers, the gateway to Southern Colorado. Located conveniently on US 50, only 45 minutes from Colorado Springs. For more information, visit their website at www.royalgorgeanglers.com. That's www.royalgorgeanglers.com. Or call 888-994-6743. That's 888-994-6743. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Captain John Comiskey about fly fishing for redfish. If you'd like to ask John a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. Click on the link below the description of the show that says click here to ask John your most important question. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we're trying to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Uh, John, before we get back to the questions about location, uh, I want to have you just tell us a little bit about some of the background research uh, and how you evolved this uh, new book, Redfish on the Fly, a comprehensive guide. Ten years ago, I wrote a book called Fly Fishing for Redfish. It had, shall we say, flaws. It could have been better. I, I think I rushed it. And I didn't know as much then as I know now, of course. So my original idea was to revise the book, but when I started to work on the new book, I realized it was a whole new book. It was different. I didn't really use the material from the old book at all. So 20 years of fishing for redfish went into it here in the Indian River Lagoon and wherever else I've traveled to to fish for them. Then the the final uh, touch on the book I already mentioned. I I drove to North Carolina and fished my way home. I did that in October, and I flew to Texas and fished my way home. I did that in December, and I I took that material and the interviews with all the guides that I met and made that a whole section of the book. It was very interesting to me that. There were so many similarities, but there were also so many differences in the way that we did things. There isn't any one right way to do things. You have to do what's comfortable for you. You have to you have to fish according to your own personal fishing style. And so I wanted to get these other people's um, techniques and ideas in there to, to illustrate that that you know different people do things different ways, but lots of different things will work. So. You do what works best for you. Sure. Well, I, I think the thing that really impresses me about this book is that it's uh, got so much practical information, and I think folks that are interested in broadening their horizons with redfish would be very interested in it. How how do people access this book? Uh, Boy, that's a great question. Of course, it's available from my website, which is www.spottedtail.com. I sell them through Amazon. They can get them through their local fly shops. Um, you could, if you wanted to have a really long time for it to get there, go to your local bookstore and special order it because Argonaut Publishing doesn't deal with bookstores very often. Um, those are the main ways. Okay. So and, uh, and, Don, to make a note, it is on our new books uh, page. That's right. Uh, with a link to um, a review that Don just finished up on that book. And also links to Argonaut there, uh, where they can go directly to 
uh, Argonaut site to, to purchase those books. Yeah. Thank you, Roger. Sure. Let's uh, let's just get back to the the location uh, kind of thing, uh, John. In the different locations, are some seasons better than others for redfish uh, fishing? Well, I'm glad to ask that question. The fish are available all year long. Typically, all through their range, what happens in the summertime is the water is dirtier which makes fishing more difficult because it's a, if you fly fish for redfish, it's a sight fishing experience. So if it's hard to see, that makes fishing more difficult. Typically in the wintertime, the water is clearer, so, so that helps. As far as seeing them goes, in some places the water gets so cold or that the fish don't want to eat. But typically that happens like in North Carolina, I've heard people say in the Florida Panhandle they don't eat good in the wintertime, but I have trouble believing that because I know all throughout the rest of their range they eat pretty darn good all year long. So There are um, astronomical things that happen, too. Around the time of the solstices, the winter solstice and the summer solstice, that's when you get the highest tides. So the high tides make the water deep, which makes it hard to see the fish, so fishing can be tougher on those times. The lowest tides are around the equinoxes. So a lot of times, the shallow, because you're trying to sight fish, you want shallow water, and usually people like lower tides, they like clean water, they like no clouds. Needless to say, they don't like it when it's real windy. Those are the type of conditions you like to have. Did I answer picky, your question? Picky. Yeah, really. <laughs> picky. Uh, what, when... Um, when would be then the optimal uh, time frames that, uh, you know, if a person was, you you live down there, so you can kind of pick and choose when you want to go, but a person flying down there, uh, what would be their best time ranges, date ranges, I should say? Here in Florida? Yeah. Our fish are available all year. Okay, they live in the, in the Indian River Lagoon system. If if we have a very wet summer, the water in, it's non-tidal now. So if we have a very wet summer, the water in the lagoon goes up and it tends to be dirty because of the runoff that makes fly fishing tough because you can't see. On the other hand, in the summertime, you might catch snook, you might catch jack crevel, you might catch tarpon. So the redfish, maybe you don't care so much. You know, I'd rather catch an 80-pound tarpon than an 8-pound redfish most of the time. <laughs> In the wintertime, what happens, our fish school up, especially the smaller ones, what we call our slot fish. If you find a school and they don't want to move, you can catch a lot of fish. Uh, in the summertime, the weather's more stable, especially early in the morning. It's a really good time for the big redfish. If you want to target the 20- and 30-pound fish, usually summer's a better time to do it. They won't come into shallow water unless the weather is nice. They like the same kind of weather we like. So nice warm sun, very little wind. That's when they that's when they show up on the flats. If they're in six feet of water, they're there, but you can't see them, so it makes them really hard to catch. I've got a question here from Tom Marks, who it looks like divides his time between New York and Port, Port uh, Charlotte, Florida. He wonders about the impact of tide direction on redfish fishing 
and uh, uh, maybe you could just comment uh, also in detail in those places where they do have big tide swings, how you, uh, how you determine when and where to fish. Um, tide direction, it depends on the time of year. When it's hot in the summertime, incoming tide is better because it brings cooler water in. And if the incoming tide is early in the day so that the sun hasn't started blazing quite as badly yet, then so much the better. Um, in the wintertime, you try and find places where there's not a lot of water movement so it has a chance to warm up because two or three degrees in the wintertime is tremendously significant to the comfort of those fish. And it, they will find those warmer pockets of water and concentrate in there. So it depends on the time of year. In the summertime, you want an incoming tide. In the wintertime, um, a lot of times a slow tide or an outgoing tide will be better. I know if he's asking, I remember that he asked something specific about Pine Island Sound, too. Um, my friend Rick DePiva guides there, and he fishes for tailing redfish anytime he gets a tide that's less than one foot on the tide chart. He goes out to grass flats that are surrounded by deeper water, and he looks for wading birds, and uh, that's where the redfish are, around where the birds are. He has tremendous success all year long. He gets the best tides in the winter, but when he gets them at other times of year, the fish are always there. If the tide is below a foot, they're there. I've got another question from Tom uh, here uh, regarding the mangroves around Pine Island Sound. He wonders, uh, as fish are working in there, do you tend to, to key on the structure, the mangrove stands, or do you uh, look for fish more in the open areas? Well, Don, that's what I was just talking about in Pine Island Sound. Okay. Rick prefers the tailing fish on, on the low tides. Um, you, can, you can catch the fish on the higher tides, and they will be around those mangrove islands, but it's blind fishing. You just... You, you have to chuck a fly that's got a weed guard up under the branches and let it sink a little bit and work it out of there. It's hard work. It's not as much fun as going to a tailing fish by any means, but it works. In general, when you go to a new area and you're looking for fish, how, how do you locate them? It's a search mission, and it depends on what area you're in. If you are in a tidal area where there is Spartina grass and there are oysters and there are mud flats, you need to find a spot where you have all three of those things in close proximity. In other words, you could be in a salt marsh and it, could, it all looks beautiful, but if you can't find oysters along with that marsh grass and a large mud flat, you're not going to find any fish until you do. You need all three habitat components there. Here where I fish in the Indian River system, it's a non-tidal area. We don't have Spartina grass. We don't have oysters. And so you just get on the flat and you use your electric motor or you push-pull and just start looking for them. And usually I'll pull the flat for 20 minutes or so, and if I don't see any fish there, then I go out to deep water, start the motor, go to a different flat and look there, and I keep looking until I either find some fish or run out of time. I know along the Gulf Coast, it's kind of a mixture there because they do have Spartina marshes, but they don't have big tides. A, a big tide in a lot of places in the Gulf Coast is two feet, so okay. they use a combination of those techniques. It's, 
certainly after you've been fishing in an area for a while, you learn where the fish hang out, where they like to be. But what do they then, John, um, when you say that? So, so there can be a certain part of a flat, and they'll generally stay in that area or, or return to... I mean, how, how much moving around a flat do they, they do? I was at a talk by um, Charlie Winter. He's a biologist in South Carolina. That was, this was about six months ago when I was in South Carolina. They tag fish, and they come back a year later and set their nets, and they catch the fish they tagged in that same spot a year before. The fish, they use the same areas all the time. So that makes them uh, very subject to overfishing. If a, if a bunch of people know that those fish are there at certain tide phases and target them over and over and over again, they can wipe the, that year class of fish off of that spot, and then they won't have any fish again until the next year class shows up. So, yeah, they use the same spots a long, long time. If you find a good redfish spot, it will be good indefinitely, as long as it doesn't get fished out. And so the fish might just, if, if you're not seeing them in the, the place you caught them last, they might just be 50 or 100 yards east or west or something like that. And they don't move very far. Well, let's, um, um, let's talk a little bit about equipment uh, that you might use for uh, fish, and let's... Let's do that here after our next break, okay, Don? All righty. When we return, John will be answering more of your questions about fly fishing for redfish. Fly tires, are you looking for better thread control when you're tying up those number 20 parachute atoms or spinning deer hair? Are you breaking thread, tightening down on those big saltwater streamers? The right bobbin is your answer. That's R-I-T-E bobbin. It's the only adjustable thread tension bobbin on the market today. Just dial in the tension one ounce at a time and kiss broken thread goodbye. Professional fly tires worldwide are enjoying perfect thread control for all their patents. For details, see us at the Fly Fishing Show around the country or go to our website at www.rightbobbins.com. That's R-I-T-E bobbins.com. Right Bobbins sold at dealers worldwide. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with John Kamiski about fly fishing for redfish. If you'd like to ask John a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. Click on the link below the description of the show that says click here to ask John your most important question. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we're trying to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Uh, John, in terms of, of equipment, we've got uh, several questions. Number one, what weight, rod, and equipment do you recommend using? Most of the guys I interviewed prefer eight weights. They like a floating line. They like a, uh, a reel that will hold 100 yards of backing in addition to the fly line. Could you use a nine weight? Yes. Could you use a seven weight? Yes. There are those of us out here that use quite light rods like threes and four weights sometimes. Um, I don't recommend that to your casual angler, but it can be done. Well, that's, eight that's, weight, I would say, is a, a general rule. You can't go wrong with an eight weight. It's your standard saltwater outfit. So, so and and uh, when you say to the casual angler, uh, I was concerned about uh, with a lighter weight rod, how long it takes them to land the fish. Yeah, um, I do seminars, and I'll get a scale, a channel on scale, and we will. Hook. Most most fly fishermen have no idea how much pressure they put on a fish when they pull on the fish because they've never hooked their leader to a scale and checked it um, 
And if, if you randomly ask fly fishermen, how hard do you pull on the fish, you get some wild answers from that. If you get a scale and you measure it, then there's no doubt about how hard you can pull on it anymore. But until you do that, you shouldn't use a light rod because you will not pull in hard enough on that fish to get them in before the fish is dead. So with a bigger rod, you can just get them in faster because you're not so concerned about breaking things. Do you have any particular techniques as far as landing fish that uh, you could suggest? Other than... Uh, Getting a scale. <laughs> no, but I mean, what happens, angle what of the rod. Uh, what happens if you get the scale, Roger? The, the highest I've ever seen anyone get the scale. And the, this gentleman was a big guy, and he was using a 12 weight. He got it up to 14 pounds. With a 7 weight, I can get it up to 10 pounds. What you do, in order to put pressure on the fish, you basically point the rod straight at the fish, you know, you really line down, so you're pointing right at the fish, and that's when you start to pull on them, and that's how you get the butt of the rod working for you. The tip of the rod is made to cast. The butt of the rod is made to fight fish. If you have the rod up high and just the tip is bending, the tip is thin and wimpy, and it's not going to pull on that fish very hard. So you have to point the rod at them in order to get the, the beef of the rod going. So that would be my uh, main thing. Just hold the rod sideways, lock your arms at your side, turn your body, get get the whole thing going. You know, if you have a five-pounder, it's not that important. It's when you get those 20 and 25-pounders, you've got to pull on them so they don't die after you let them go. Okay. Uh, can you tell us, John, about the terminal gear you use? Uh, you've, you've got a pretty abrasive environment there between some of the course of plant life and oyster shells and that sort of thing. Chuck Neiser over there in Rockport, Texas, likes a 10-pound tippet where he fishes. The guys on the east coast of the United States fishing in Georgia and the Carolinas in those big tide areas where there's lots of oysters, they like a 20-pound tippet. Here in the Indian River Lagoon, I usually use 12- or 15-pound fluorocarbon. I like a two-piece leader. It's a butt and a tippet, and it's real simple, and it's really hard to break it. And uh, I'm not a big fan of lots and knots in my leader because knots break. So, okay. so how do you configure that leader then? I mean, what's your what's your length, the two pieces, uh, and how do you how do you attach them together? Anything what I do in my own fishing is I get a piece of 30-pound monofilament. I spread my arms as far as they will go, and that's how long that butt section is. I cut it that long, so that's close to six feet. I tie a double surgeon's loop at each end. I loop one end to my fly line and the other end is for the tippet. Then for the tippet, if it's 12-pound test, I get the same length of 12-pound test fluorocarbon. I tie a short bimini twist in the end. I put a double surgeon's loop in that. I loop it to my butt section. And uh, all the knots, 100% knots, and the only place that will ever break is where the fly is tied on or if I get a wind knot. Yes, I do get wind knots sometimes. <laughs> you don't have wind down there, do you? Um, we did today. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think uh, everybody's well aware of the fact that when you get near uh, ocean water, you've got wind as part of the equation, and you, you need to be prepared to deal with that in your casting. John, why don't we uh, move on and next, and you can tell us a little bit about flies. Why don't we start that conversation out with uh, just a brief discussion about the eating habits of redfish. We can do that. The size fish we're interested in catching eat 
they have three major diet components: small fish, shrimp, and crabs. That covers ninety percent plus of what they eat. So if you have, if you have flies that imitate those three things, then you are going to be in pretty good shape. So in terms of flies, then I noticed in your book you didn't spend an awful lot of time on flies, and I think there was an intention in that that. Uh, uh, you you made a remark that uh, that there's sort of a limited variety that may be necessary, and that redfish may not be as discriminating in in their eating habits as some fish that other people are accustomed to. Don, I'm I'm sure everyone who's listening to this are familiar with the uh, selectivity of freshwater trout sometimes, and if how if they're feeding on a number 18 blue wing olive and you toss them a number 12 royal coachman, your chance of getting bit is pretty slim. Redfish do get like that occasionally, but it's fairly rare. They're pretty generic in what they're eating a lot of the time. So there are lots and lots and lots of flies out there that you can use to catch redfish, but you don't need to carry lots and lots and lots and lots of flies. What you need to do is you need to have shrimp, fish, and crab imitations. You need to have flies that sink... um, God, I can't find the word I want. They need to sink quickly. A closure minnow would be a prime example of that. You need to have flies that come down and land very, very softly, unweighted flies. You need to have flies that float. Poppers certainly work. Um, poppers and sliders and those types of things. And when you can't see, poppers and sliders are very, very good things to use because they make a lot of noise and they attract the fish to them. So for blind casting situations, they're excellent. Um, and so I divided the categories of flies in the book and in my own mind into attracted types and imitator types. The imitator types are the types that imitate shrimp, crabs, or fish. And the attracted types may not imitate anything particular. They make noise. A rattle rouser would be a good example of that. They are very flashy and work like a spoon. Many different types of spoon flies. My personal preference is for the Jim Dupree's fly. They're commercially available. The Dupree spoon fly or poppers. When I can't see, that's what's going to be on the end of my leader. If I can see... It's going to be a crab or a shrimp or a small fish imitation. Now, John, when they're tailing, uh, does that mean they're they're feeding on crabs more than likely or shrimp on the bottom? Usually, yes. Sometimes they're digging worms out of the bottom. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Now, what um, you mentioned the clouser and the uh, spoon. What? What? Uh, are there any particular shrimp patterns that uh, that you like to have in your box? I use two. Tim Borsky's bonefish slider is an excellent redfish fly. You don't tie it on a number six usually, although some guys use number six Borsky sliders for redfish. I know Chuck Neiser in Texas does. Um, I like him in number four usually. And I like a seducer. Uh, I tie mine with grizzly hackle exclusively, and they're, they're fairly homely. You wouldn't find one in a fly shop. And if they tried to sell them in a fly shop, I don't think they'd have very much success. But they are very, very effective. And those are the only two shrimp patterns I carry. It's like my crab patterns, too. The only one I use is a merkin crab. Um, 
It's just made with rug yarn. It's easy to make. It's very hard to destroy, and the fish eat it really well. So keep it simple, man. I like that simple approach, you know? Yeah, here's a question from Rupert Cuny down in uh, South Carolina. He's wondering about uh, uh, what fly you you like uh, when you're working on redfish in thick Spartina grass. Well, obviously, you have to have a fly with the weed guard. I make one that I call a bunny booger, which is a very simple five-minute fly made entirely with zonker strips. Um, it has a short zonker strip tail, and then I tie the zonker strip in like it's a hackle feather, and I palmer it around the hook like you would palmer a hackle feather. I tie it off behind the lead eye, put a weed guard on, whip the head, and I'm done. Um, that's worked very well for me. That having been said, that Dupree Spoonfly is a guide favorite wherever that Spartina grass is because it goes through the grass so well and the fish can see it and they jump all over it. Okay. Are, are there colors that you feel just have to be uh, present uh, in your redfish flies? You, you've mentioned some of the colors you typically use, but is there something that's a, a real trigger for them? I don't think so. I think that... uh if, if I'm sight fishing, I prefer natural types of colors. You know, what color? What colors are crabs? The ones I tie are almost exclusively brown. Um, I find other colors, and when I fillet redfish, they have other t- color crabs in there. But when it comes to crabs, they are not very discriminating. They like them. They eat them when they see them. It doesn't matter what kind it is or what color it is. Um, Again, if I'm if I can't see the fish because the water's dirty or it's cloudy or it's windy or it's deep or whatever, then I'm going to use a larger, more colorful pattern that's going to attract their attention more. If uh, if I can see them and I can get that fly where I want it to be, I want it to look like something they eat. So it depends on the situation. Okay. Uh, one question that uh, that we have here uh, mentions that. Flies with rattles seem to be uh, fairly popular in the saltwater fishing world. Are there, well, the question is, what do they imitate, and are there ways to tie those flies so that they're not too bulky? I'm not sure they imitate anything. I think that the, the noise of the rattle just arouses the curiosity of the fish. They hear this thing, they come see what it is. Oh, it might be edible, let's try. The way I make my rattleflies, and this is rather specific, so I hope whoever asked this has got a pencil. I use a Mustad 34011 size 2. And I get some medium mylar tubing. I prefer the kind that glows in the dark, but you can use whatever color you like. Certainly gold is very popular. You start the thread, you wind it to the back of the hook, you tie in the tube, you wrap the thread up to the front of the hook, and just let the bobbin hang. You cut the tube so it's slightly longer than the length of the hook shank. Then you take the rattle. I use Woody's rattles. It's a plastic rattle. I can use a uh, side cutter, like a little wire cutter, and clip the end off it. And then I take my hook file and I round all the edges on this thing. And then I put it in the mylar tube. And then I tie it off with the thread. And then at that point, you 
you don't have to whip finish it. You can just half hitch it. You take that hook out of the vise, put the next hook in, do the same thing, and you do like a half a dozen of them. Then you mix some five-minute epoxy up, and you slap it on all these things and let them dry. And then after the epoxy is hard, then you put the hook back in the vise and put the wing on. How about uh, just hooks for your redfish flies in general? Do you use uh, uh, circle hooks, barbless, what size, that kind of thing? My redfish flies generally range from number four to number one. I always carry bigger flies. We have some big fish in the Indian River Lagoon, and sometimes they want a half a chicken, if you understand my meaning. <laughs> um, so I carry flies up to tarpon size, you know, with three-out hooks in them, but I don't use those very often. Um, I tried circle hooks. Circle hooks are bait hooks. There's, they don't have any advantage in fly fishing that I can see. And certainly, you, you don't set the hook in... You miss that. I do anyway. I grew up setting the hook, you know. So um, I don't think you catch any more fish. You miss more strikes, I think, with circle hooks. You don't lose the fish very often after you hook it, but I don't think you hook as many. So I think the equation is that you catch the same number. If you're going to fish with bait, though, you should definitely use circle hooks. But this is ask about fly fishing, not ask about bait fishing, so I'll get off that subject <laughs> right away. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I use a Mustad 3407 for most of my redfish flies. Um, it's inexpensive, and it's very functional. If you want it barbless, you do not need a barb on a redfish fly. They very seldom shake it out. Before Florida passed the net ban, the chance of encountering large sea trout was fairly slim, so I would press down the barbs on all my hooks. Um, and I would have my fishermen sometimes say, well, don't you lose the fish that way? And I would hook a fish and throw slack in the line and let the fish swim around for 30 seconds and come tight on him, and he'd still be there. They have tough, rubbery mouths. You know, it's not going to fall out. If if you hook a sea trout, they have very thin tissues in their mouth like a crappie does. They come up to the top after you hook them, and they shake their head back and forth, and they immediately rip a hole in that, and if a barbless hook just falls right out. So I don't press the barbs down anymore because we get some big trout here, and I like to catch them. We need to take a little break here again, and uh, when we come back, we'll have you answer some more of the questions that have come in uh, about catching those uh, big redfish. Pier Marquette River Lodge, a full-service Orvis-endorsed lodge, fly shop, and guide service is located on the banks of the historic Pier Marquette River in Baldwin, Michigan, providing year-round lodging for the business or pleasure traveler as well as a full-service fly shop and guided trips for steelhead, salmon, or large resident brown trout. For more information, visit us at www.pmlodge.com. That's www.pmlodge.com or call 231 745 3972. That's 231-745-3972. We hope to see you soon. Are you listening to Ask About Fly Fishing, Internet Radio? And we're talking with John Comiskey about fly fishing for redfish. If you'd like to ask John a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the link below the description of the show that says click here to ask John your most important question. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them on the, as possible on the show tonight. Well, John, let's, let's get down to the, uh, the, the real fishing part, the presentation, strategy, techniques, those kind of things. And One of the, one of the questions was asked is, um, are, are you usually fishing 
by waiting or are from boats, kayaks, canoes? What, what, what's the most productive, do you think? I have uh, five pairs of waders. I have five kayaks. I have two canoes. I have a John boat, and I have a Maverick Mirage skiff. I use everything. Um, wading is probably the most effective if you're in an area where there are quite a few fish around because that's how you make the least amount of commotion. However, lots of places aren't very weightable. The bottom is real gushy, and uh, it's just tough going, you know. So in a lot of places, you're forced to use a boat because they're essentially impossible to wade. I know you want me to expound upon that, but I, I can't think of <laughs> where I should go here, so help me out. <laughs> well, well, how skittish are the redfish, and you know, how close can you get? Uh, you know, you, you said that you're more effective waiting because of your stealth there, but but how skittish are they? Are they skittish like bonefish or less skittish? Well, you know, Keys bonefish are world famous for being really, really skittish because, again, it's a fishing pressure thing. Uh, I fished for bonefish in Belize, and I caught bonefish in Belize with the end of my fly line in the fishing rod. So bonefish aren't genetically engineered to be skittish under all circumstances. If they're lightly fished, they're stupid, and redfish are the same way. Here in the Indian River system, they see fishermen every single day. They know what boats are. They know what boat noise is. They know what the sound of a fly line hitting the water is. If, you, if you're making any noise out there, you're not going to catch very many fish. They know what you are if you make noise, so you've got to be very, very quiet. Stealth is the name of the game. In terms of, of waiting, John, I have some questions here. Um, if, if the water is shallow enough, shallow enough for waiting, uh, how do you assess the bottom in terms of the realistic uh, nature of waiting? Does it have to be hard? Uh, can you wade the mud? What, what uh, influences that decision? That depends on your tolerance. Um, you know, some people are willing to slog through ankle-deep mud, whereas other people fall down. I know because I've seen it happen on my own charters. I don't like my fishermen to wade because they fall down. They don't all fall down, but you don't need to have very many fall down before you don't want them out there waiting anymore. So um, I, I fish out of a skiff a lot, and I have a push pole that I use a lot. And if I can stake my boat out, and for those of you who don't know what that means, I take the pointed end of the pole and I shove it into the bottom and tie the boat to it instead of dropping an anchor. If I can stake out the boat, it's not a fun place to wade the bottom is soft, I wouldn't be able to do that. If it's too hard for me to stake it out, then it's a good place to wait. Okay, so just try and jam something into the bottom. Take a stick with you and see if it will go in. If it will go in, you're probably not going to have fun because the bottom's going to be soft and it's going to be tough going. Sure. Here's a question that's uh, just come in from Z in Louisiana. Uh, he has a skiff, uh, a flat skiff, and sometimes he finds that he ends up uh, fishing alone. He's wondering if there's a workable solution to poling your boat and having your rod handy to cast without losing the pole or a rod. How do you how do you work that? I try not to fish alone from my skiff because it is a big problem. When I have done it, I pull from the bow of the boat. I have a uh, I used to have a fly line tamer, but now I use a Rubbermaid pop-up laundry basket and I keep my 
fishing rod and line in the basket while I'm polling. And when I see a fish, I have to put the pole down quietly in the push-pole holder, pick up the rod if the fish is still there. Because while while you do this, of course, you have to take your eye off the fish. So when you come back up with your fishing rod ready to fire, you don't know if the target is still there because it may have stopped tailing, it may have moved, you might have run it over, you just don't know because you're not paying attention at that moment. You're taking care of the push-pole. When I go fishing by myself, I use a kayak anymore. Better control than, uh, yeah, because you've got less things to maneuver, right? Are there, uh, it's easier to handle if you're by yourself. Yeah, yeah. The uh, prefer a kayak over canoe, again, for handling purposes? If I'm by myself, I prefer the kayak. Um, if I have someone who wants to go paddling on a paddle charter, I generally prefer to take them in the canoe because if they're in the kayak, they're on their own, and if they're in the canoe, I can coach them. I'm handling the boat. I'm telling them what to do. They have better success ordinarily than if I just say, okay, there's a fish, go get it. They don't know how to get it, and I'm not able to tell them because they're in a different boat. So, You know, we had talked about wind, and when you're trying to present this fly uh, to these fish in the wind, are there any tips, recommendations you can give for, for casting in strong wind? And are there particular flies you switch to for less wind resistance? In order to cast into the wind, you must have good technique. And, of course, you're not going to be able to cast as far, but ordinarily when it's windy, the fish are not as spooky, so that's not such a big deal. Um, But you have to have a tight loop. If your loop isn't tight, if you can't double haul, if you don't have good line speed, it's not going to go out there. So that's one thing. And, yeah, a small fly, a number four fly, a lightly weighted fly, a hundredth ounce lead eye, a bead chain eye, something like that, that doesn't have a lot of wind resistance is a very good thing to use in those types of days. Uh, John, I have a question here from Ben in Pennsylvania who wonders about the casting skills that would be necessary for uh, fishing for redfish. And I guess in that terms, we're kind of thinking in terms of how far they can cast and how well they can deal with wind and how quickly they can deliver their fly. John, um, people who can cast well will catch more fish than people who can't. And it's not... People are always concerned about distance. If someone who lives in Pennsylvania who has never done this type of fishing before, it's a very new world to them because they're used to fishing in a stream where the fish are stationary, and so are they most of the time because they're waiting. Um, So they have all day to get that fly there. If you're fishing for redfish, ordinarily the fish is moving. Many times if you're in a boat, the boat is moving. The air is moving. Sometimes the water is moving. There's a lot of motion there, so... You have to get the fly there right away. So speed of delivery is a very important thing, and accuracy is a very important thing. So you, you really need to be able to double haul. And uh, that's a skill thing. It takes practice. So if you can make a 50-foot cast with two false casts, a 35-foot cast is going to be a breeze. If you can make an 80-foot cast with two or three false casts, a 50-foot cast is going to be a breeze. And certainly, if you can cast 50 feet, Quickly and accurately, you're going to catch a ton of fish because most of the time you can't see them any farther away than that anyway. Okay. 
Um, I have a question here from Al down in Glenrose, Texas. Al's a master fly casting instructor. He wants your help in knowing how to deal with getting a fly into the spartinograss, but not only that, getting the fish to feed on that fly once it's in the area. Any tricks there? Do you have to bump them to get their attention? When the fish are in that grass, I haven't fished in spartina grass in Texas, but I've certainly done it in Georgia and in the Carolinas. And here in Florida, too, up, up around Jacksonville, um, the grass is thick, and the fish cannot see more than a foot in any direction. You can, If you're waiting, you can get very close to them. As a matter of fact, in Georgia, they poach them by gigging them and by cast netting them in the grass. I don't know how that net would work in the grass, but mm-hmm. I've been told that anyway. Um, so you have to get the fly right in their face. And uh, oh, spoon flies are great for that because they're very flashy and the, the fish pick up that, the flash, you know. I know a gentleman up in, he lives on Cumberland Sound on the Florida-Georgia state line. He took some chartreuse shoelaces off his son's tennis shoe and tied three shoelace flies Needless to say, these are not very sophisticated pieces of equipment that he made with the shoelace. And uh, put weed guards on them and went out and caught fish with them. So basically, you need to show it to them. They're in that grass looking for something to eat, and if you get the fly in front of them, most of the time they'll eat it. When you're uh, casting to these fish and, and you're sight casting to them, uh, how far can you safely lead them? I mean, we all know about the plop of the, especially these weighted flies and so forth. You know, how, how far out do you need to lead them to, to safely so you don't spook them? I am so glad we got to this finally. Um, when you see the fish, there's a certain sequence of events that have to happen, and it works best if it happens without conscious thought. You have to see what the fish is doing. Is it moving? Which way is it moving? Where's his head? Because if you cast to his tail, you're not going to get bites most of the time. They eat at the other end. Um, if he is moving, how fast is he going? How deep is the water? All this type of thing. So what what I try to do is anticipate where the fish is going, lead him by an amount which you never know exactly how far you can get away with, how close you can get away with. And it depends, again, how heavily fished they are. Lightly fished fish you can bang them right in the head and they come right up and smack it. The heavily fished fish, you better lead them a couple feet anyway. But their mood changes too. You know, you could be in a heavily fished area, but if the fish are aggressive that day, if it hits them on the head, they'll still come up and whack it. Whereas other days, you can't get close enough to throw the fly to them because they just won't tolerate your presence there. So um, anyway, I digress. You spot the fish. You try and get where if you're waiting or in a boat of any type. I, I was I was giving a talk last night to a kayak fishing club, and I said that this is a problem. Guys see the fish; they they just try and get into casting range and then they fire away. That isn't enough. You have to get into a position where when you make your cast, it's going to be good. You have to know the cast is going to land where it needs to land, which in my case. I usually try and lead them 18, 20 inches, something like that. Um, if they're 20 inches away from my fly, I do not move that fly. I wait till they're like 
seven or eight inches away, and I just hop the fly. Just make the fly look alive is all you need to do. And uh, if they see it, you'll know. Because one thing that might happen, they turn and flee. One thing that happens, they come over and look at it and say, uh-uh, and swim away. Or they come over and eat it. Those are the only three things they can do. If they don't do one of those three things, they didn't see it. Try again. Now, what's their take like? Is it a strong take? Is it more of a, just a soft inhale? All those things. Depends how aggressive they are. Okay. And once uh, once you feel the take, how, how do you set the hook uh, for red? What's the most effective way to... Ordinarily, you're working the. You have the line. Excuse me. You have the rod pointed straight down the line, pointing right at the fly, straightest possible line between your. I'm right-handed, so between your line hand, let's say line hand instead of left hand, between your line hand and that fly is the straightest possible line. You feel the thump. You just tug with your line hand. That's all you need to do. A strip strike. Once it's tight, then you lift the rod and you try and clear the line. Sometimes there's very little line there, but sometimes it's like a huge pile of spaghetti, and it's got to clear or bad stuff happens. Okay. I've got a very interesting question from Jeremy Allen in South Jordan, Utah. He wants to know if fishing for redfish uh, improves one's trout fishing skills. And the reason he asks, a fellow that he's acquainted with, Rick Hartman, fishes for trout about once a year, and the rest of the time he's fishing for redfish. But he won a fly fishing master's tournament this year on trout. And uh, Jeremy's wondering, was it uh, his redfishing skills that that accomplished that? Was it blind luck, or is there a crossover here? Well, Jeremy, it hasn't worked for me because I'm not a good trout fisherman. Of course, I don't even do it once a year. So, you know, when I take my once every five or six year trout fishing trip, I'm pretty miserable at it. I think, though, that if you're going to be a good red fisherman, you've got to be a good caster. And that can't hurt you in any type of fishing. Um, Once you start sight fishing in salt water, you, you apply those skills no matter where you go. You might be blind fishing, but you're always looking. And, of course, you don't see much if you don't look. So if you're looking, you might just see some fish that the guy who went through the pool before you missed. So I'm speculating here, but it seems to me that it it couldn't possibly hurt to become a better caster and always have your radar up. Sounds reasonable. Um, Kyle down in Sarasota, Florida, is still wondering about how you locate redfish if they aren't tailing or if you if they're not showing wakes. I haven't ever hunted deer, um, Don, but if you talk to deer hunters about what they look for when they're out in the woods, they they never tell you. Well, I look for a deer. They'll tell you I look for an ear twitching. I look for the tail to move. I look for an antler. Um, They're looking for clues that tell them that the deer is there. And when you're out looking for redfish and they're not showing themselves, that's what you have to do. You're You're not looking for a goldfish in a bowl because if you look for a goldfish in a bowl, you're not going to see many fish. They don't usually show themselves that easily. Um, I know one of the things... 
I see sometimes if the fish are swimming at me, as they're breathing and their mouth is opening, you see this white thing keep appearing, which is the inside of their mouth. It's all you can see. Um, you have to learn to see that, of course. You, when the first time you see it, you don't know what it is. But once you've identified what it is, every time you see it, you know exactly what it is. Another thing that's similar to that, if redfish are cruising over a dark bottom, they blend in quite well. But their pectoral fin, which is like the size of a nickel or a quarter, it's not very big, is lighter in color. And you just see this little light-colored thing moving across the dark bottom. You know there's a fish attached to that thing. So that's another thing you look for. Um, sometimes the fish will tail, but the water's too deep, and you can't. the tail doesn't come out of the water. Particularly on the smaller fish, the uh, the back edge of their tail has a bluish tinge to it. And you'll see this very light-colored, wormy, vertical thing in the water. The, the first couple times I saw it, I didn't realize what it was. It was the, the uh, back side of their tail, the end of their tail, that blue thing just wiggling as they tailed in water that was too deep for the tail to come out of the water. So there's there's a bunch of subtle things you can look for. Um, another behavior they have, which is a great one to see, a happy, relaxed redfish as it's cruising along will sometimes roll on his side. And when he does that, the light catches. It's like flashing a mirror. It only lasts a second. But when you see that, it's the color of a brand-new penny, and there is absolutely no mistaking it. You can tell which direction the fish is moving in, how big he is, how fast he's moving. You get a ton of information if you happen to be looking in the right spot when he does that. Fish that flash are usually happy, relaxed fish, and they'll eat. The fish will almost always eat. Those what, are some what, of the things I look for. Great. Those are those are great tips. Great uh, tip. Tell us a little bit about what the, the fight is like for a, for a good-sized redfish um, and... Um, once you get them to you, are there any specific tips on handling or releasing redfish that you should know about versus other fish? They're not spectacular fighters. They don't jump. If, 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 I was, if I were king, they would jump out of the water, but they don't. Even when they're being pursued by sharks, they won't jump out of the water. They never, ever jump out of the water. Um, but if you get one that's 30 inches or better, he'll go into your backing, and sometimes he'll go into it more than once. So they're strong. Um, they're not as fast as a bonefish, but on the other hand, bonefish don't get to be 30 pounds, so I think it's a fair, fair trade-off there. The bigger they are, the harder you have to fight them, and the more delicate they are. So when you get them up to you, we've all seen pictures of fish on boga grips. A boga grip is a wonderful tool for controlling fish, but I don't I don't know why people feel they have to hang this fish by its jaw to show it off. It's a it's an ugly picture and uh it's very bad for the fish. Fish live in water. The water supports their weight. Fish have very compared to our skeletons, their skeletons are quite flimsy because they live in the water. They don't need a big bulky skeleton like we have. We have to fight gravity all the time. They don't. They basically live in a weightless environment. When you take that fish and hang it by its jaw, all its weight is hanging from the jaw, and things are tearing in its gills and in that whole area. And the other thing that happens is all its guts are sliding downhill. So that's like the worst possible thing you could do to any fish over about five or six pounds. Bad, bad thing to do to them. 
Um, keep them in the water as much as you can. They make de-hookers. You can make your own or you can buy them commercially. X-Tools makes one. Especially if the hook is barbless, you get the hook around it, you just pop it right out. But even if the hook still has a barb on it, you get that de-hook around it, most of the time you can just pop the hook right out without taking the fish out of the water or even touching it. If you have to bring them into the boat, because you have to get a picture of it, and I understand, I mean, I make part of my living taking pictures of fish. Um, don't take the fish out of the water until the camera is ready. Keep the fish horizontal so things aren't sliding around inside of them. And put him back in the water quickly because he, he just fought for his life and he's panting and he can't breathe when you pull him out of the water. So have some consideration there. If the water's hot in the summertime, it's particularly important too. Hot water doesn't have very much oxygen. Um, you might have to revive him for 10 minutes. You might have to revive him for 15 minutes. And sometimes they die. You just can't revive them. If you're going to let them go in a grassy area, you need to bring them to a place where there's no grass because they get tangled up in the grass and they're tired. They can't get out of it. They'll die. Hmm. Those are great tips. Uh, let's uh, try to move on and answer some of these questions about locations, uh, uh, John, and we'll probably have to step right along with them. Here's a question from Rob Bloomquist in Atlanta. He fishes the Panhandle area of Florida from Pensacola to Apalachicola. Wonders if there are any techniques or flies that uh, would be regarded as, as specific for that area. Not that I know of. I haven't fished around Pensacola, but I've fished around Panama City. I've, I can't believe I have to say this. I haven't ever fished in Apalachicola Bay. It's supposed to be great, too. But I'm sure if you call the Robinson brothers there and ask them, they'll tell you, well, we use crab patterns and shrimp patterns and fish patterns. <laughs> it's hard to beat a closet minnow, you know what I mean? It's real simple, and everything eats them. So. Okay. Uh, Tom Marks here wants to know if you can recommend any good guides around Boca Grande or Port Charlotte. I know several guides there. Um, my buddy Rick DePaiva guides there. He He works out of Fort Myers. Up out of Boca Grande itself, the Tommy Locke is a great guide. Uh, Zeke, who owns Boca Grande Outfitters, he's got he's good himself, and he's got a bunch of people working for him. So, the legendary Pete Greenan works up there too. Pete lives in Sarasota, so there's a bunch of really good fishermen there. All right, uh, Don Cox in Ohio wants to know if you're in Orlando, do you go to the East Coast or the West Coast of Florida, and, and what factors into your decision? I go to the East Coast because it's half as long to drive. That's my decision right there. I'd rather be fishing than driving, you know what I mean? Uh, Scott in Pueblo, Colorado, uh, he wants to know, we talked about this, the best time to go down for reds. He's going down to Corpus in August and want to know if that time or another time would be better. The fish are always there. And it's a weather thing. If he goes there in August, he's going to be doing dawn patrol trips and probably be off the water by noontime. Okay. If he goes in the wintertime, you know, like in October, November, when I was there in December, you can fish all day if, if you don't have fronts coming through. When I went to South Texas, I went to South Padre Island. I was there three days. I fished one hour because the rain was coming down sideways the whole rest of the time. That happens when you go in the wintertime. That's the kind of weather you run into. Well, gentlemen, uh, unfortunately, it's time to, to wrap things up. Um, 
And uh, when we return, we're going to give away an autographed copy of John's new book, Redfish on the Fly, and a one-year subscription to Fly Fusion Magazine, and a three-year membership to the Federation of Fly Fishers. So stay tuned to see if you win. Attention, fly fishers. Are you aware of the proposed pebble mine project in southwest Alaska? This enormous open pit could generate as much as 3 billion tons of waste in a seismic area with some of the most important trout and Pacific salmon fisheries in all of Alaska, or the world for that matter. The well-being of Lake Iliamna and the entire Bristol Bay area waters may be at stake. If you have not already, acquaint yourself with the concerns. You can make a difference, and the ramifications reach far beyond fly fishing. Go to www.bristolbayalliance.com, that's www.bristolbayalliance.com, or Google Bristol Bay Mining. Get involved, be proactive, help protect our environment and the future of fly fishing. On our events calendar tonight, the Lower Umpqua Flycasters will hold their 17th annual Fly Fishing Expo at Reedsport High School in Reedsport, Oregon, on Saturday, March 24th, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Admission is free, and a variety of activities will include fly tying and fly casting demos, as well as special programs like salmon restoration on the Klamath River. There will also be door prizes and a raffle. Go to the Global Events Calendar. The link is on the bottom of each page of our website. Look under Oregon for more information. Fly Shops and Clubs, you can list all your fly fishing-related events on our Global Events Calendar. It's free, and you do it yourself. Go to the events calendar and get started. Get your events out there for everyone to see. Classes, demos, clinics, shows, schools, anything related to fly fishing. We'll be highlighting one event from the calendar on each of our shows. Well, just a reminder to everyone uh, tonight, before you leave our website, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in this section uh, for tonight's show that says, what do you think of this show? Uh, just click on that and leave your comments. We'd surely appreciate it. Well, now it's time to give away John's brand-new book. So anybody interested in redfish, this is for sure a book that you're going to want to get. And um, I'm going to go uh, – uh, the, the, the winners are randomly drawn from whoever registered on our site. Uh, so tonight it's already too late to register, but next time make sure you do register so you can uh, be in line for some of these incredible prizes that we have to give away. So, I'm gonna, John, I'm going to do the drawing right now for your redfish on the fly and uh, we'll see who the, who the winner is. So I'll press the magic button. And the winner is huh, Ponsus Burzen in Sweden. That's that lucky one. guy. <laughs> All right. Well, now he's got to make a trip. Now, this is my, my cousin lives in Germany, and he's coming over in May. So uh, a lot of Europeans love to come to Florida, so this will be his chance to put that book to good use. That's great. So we've got quite a reader uh, listenership out there, that's for sure. Well, congratulations, and the yeah. next uh, winner will be the winner of a one-year subscription to Fly Fusion magazine, uh, just an incredible magazine that uh, comes out of uh, Calgary, Canada. And the winner for that is Dale Frame in Ohio. Dale Frame, Ohio. Right, covering the globe. And then the final one is going to be... Uh, and this is for a three-year membership to the Federation of Fly Fishers. And that winner is Alan Chris in Texas. All right. He's yeah. one of the questions. Excellent. So um, those are our winners tonight. Congratulations, everyone. 
and thanks for listening. Yeah, congratulations, all you folks. Well, John, uh, we really appreciate you being on the show with us tonight. Uh, uh, the, the kind of practical information that you pass on with your books and with talks like this is, uh, I think, really very useful. I hope that uh, sometime in the future you can join us. I hope I can, too. All right. I appreciate the chance to get on, and uh, I'd like to thank all all my listeners out there. <laughs> well, great to have you, John. Our, our next broadcast will be on April 4th at 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern. And on that show, we'll be interviewing Barry Reynolds again for the second time, but this time our topic of the show is going to be on peacock bass. Now, you got some peacocks down there in uh, Florida, right, John? There are peacocks here in Florida. Right. Well, Barry Reynolds has recently returned from an exciting fly fishing adventure for peacock bass on the Rio Negro River in Brazil. Uh, but peacock bass are also found in the rivers and canals of Florida, Hawaii, Central America, and other South American countries. Uh, so join Barry to learn about fly fishing for these beautiful fish. We would like to thank the R.L. Winston Rod Company, Royal Gorge Anglers, Pierre Marquette River Lodge, and Wright Bobbins for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. And feel free to explore the other areas of our site, such as the events calendar and the directories. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.